Hi there. We have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Recovery Room. We are here again. It's Friday. I hope everyone is doing well. Badges are turned on, so if you want to support the channel and just give a little something back, then I'll try and give everyone a shout out who create, who um, purchases a badge, which is fantastic. So hope everyone's had a great week. It's a little bit rainy here today, so um, really looking forward to getting into this. Lots of questions have been submitted, so can't wait to uh, share them with the other three members of the panel, and we'll talk all things anxiety recovery. Uh, Kim is up first. Hi, Kim. Good morning. Hi, Josh. Josh, Hello. you've just come from running or something. Oh, no, no, I'm just a scrub. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Um, guys, I, I don't know what episode we're on. Is it two, Drew? Yeah. Three. Series three. Episode three. Oh, series two, episode three. Got some really three. intelligent people in this recovery room. Yeah. Series two, two and three. episode three. Three, two, um, I don't know. It's been a it, yeah, it's the second one with Josh, because Josh missed one, didn't he? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and apparently that was the best week ever, so it goes to show that. <laughs> um, guys, if you just want to give a quick introduction about yourselves um, and your platforms and why you're in the re recovery room and what you do for a living, it'd be fantastic. Um, Kim, let's go. Well, my name is Kimberly Quinlan. I am a clinician. I treat anxiety disorders, eating disorders, and BFRBs. Um, why am I here today? Because I love being here with you guys, and I have nothing better to do at this exact moment. <laughs> um, and mostly because I, I feel like we all have our own recovery to share, and hopefully we'll help other people and, and maybe set, direct them in the right direction. No, that sounds perfect. Um, Josh? Hi, I'm Joshua Fletcher. I'm a psychotherapist and author located in Manchester, UK. Uh, I'm the co-author of Untangle Your Anxiety with Dean's love, Dean right next to me. Uh, although I'm in the top right on this screen for some reason, so I, it, I know it's different on different people's screens. Uh, I also host the Panic Pod podcast, which if you're a fan, please go and vote for it. So then I get some kind of accolade that fills the void of my grief. Thanks. Where can we um, vote? Yeah, Where do we vote watch. there? <laughs> please fill Josh's void. Please. Come on. <laughs> Help the guy out. Uh, I'm Drew Linsalata, and I am the creator and host of the Anxious Truth podcast author and uh, I guess a teacher on the subject of anxiety and anxiety disorders. And for anybody that's really terribly interested, I also own technology companies. So we produce podcasts and audio books and we do complex web hosting and cloud computing. So you mental middle school midget, if you were going to roll in here and say that I am unemployed, come help me the <laughs> F out. I have more work than I know what to do with you, moron. At least get more creative. So there, that's that's my welcome to the recovery well, room. Drew, Drew, that is that is the most 
I love that. Powerful introduction. Kingpin. You've ever given on the recovery radio. Yeah, I'm, I've had it up to here. So like, come on, bring it. Come on in. Dispelling all the myths. I love it. Oh, all the myths. Yeah. Seriously. Yes, Kingpin. Oh, and I have to go early today because I'm also the kingpin of an illegal surgery outfit. So we've been taking out appendices in my backyard. And like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure I watched a movie about that. <laughs> yeah. oh very good anyway sorry guys. right guys there's lots of questions that i want want to try and get through kim what time do you have to leave roughly about five, just a few minutes minute? before oh, 12 cool that's fine um so the first one is for drew how can i do nothing when i'm having a panic attack it's almost contradictory well, it's contradictory because you want to do something, right? So, yes, it is contradictory. That's definitely, you know, just, I won't argue that at all. We want to do something to save ourselves during a panic attack, right? So it is contradictory. So when you hear people like me say do nothing, essentially an operation will do nothing. How do you do it? It is contradictory. Yes, you want to save yourself, but saving yourself is a bad thing. And we all know why. We can go through it again, I suppose. But then when it ends, you'll think that all of those special saving rituals are, are the reason why it ends. And you'll think you have to keep doing that and that you should be afraid of panic. So how do you do nothing? I think the key word that people hate is the courage part. Like there is a leap of faith that says, well, I know logically that I'm okay. And these bozos keep telling me to do nothing and let it happen. So I'm going to have to take a leap of faith, even though I don't want to do that. And I'm going to have to be brave and just like let all these bad things that I think might happen happen so that I can learn through experience that they do not. But I think that's usually that question is how do I do it when I'm so afraid to do it? And it's, it's, it's kind of tough. It sucks. The hard truth of that is you're going to have to be kind of brave the first few times you do it. Not kind of really brave. Like I will, I'll admit that really brave. So what would your, what would your advice be if someone was out in a supermarket, for example, um, and they suddenly had a panic attack in the middle of the supermarket? Keep, keep shopping. Like really. And I know that sounds crazy because a lot of people watching, are going to say that's impossible. It's how can I possibly keep shopping? I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to pass out. I feel like I'm going to go crazy. So I understand all the things that it feels like, but really you are capable. You can feel like that and also function in the supermarket at the same time. So that's that principle that says, and it's like the foundation of a lot of this recovery stuff, more than one thing can be true at the same time. So you can feel like you're going to die because of panic and also be okay and able to shop. Now, does that mean you're gonna have the best shopping trip that you ever have? No, definitely not. But you are capable of putting one foot in front of the other and, and continuing your shopping trip, albeit probably slower, a little bit more deliberately. There are things you can do slowing down and things of that nature, but keep shopping. I know what you want to say. The answer you want would be, I want run out of the grocery store and escape, but that's not it. You have to stay down. So Fantastic. big shout out to Anyone Danny, by the way. Run? Danny's comments. Uncomfortable yeah. doesn't mean like, just Danny is killing it, by the way. Danny Polo. She is making tremendous Fantastic. strides doing exactly this stuff. There he is. What's up, dude? <laughs> you you couldn't you actually couldn't write out all the letters after my name you moron you lowly angry he's got you he's got you drew. he's gone he's gone you skin yeah so, no this is so, now entertaining uh, for me so i'll give up my spot you could come on with us if you want i'll let these three hands. Um, you won't like it josh you have to tell me i can't see i can't see the comments today you're missing it 
no. No. I would say the only thing is if you're, let's say you were in the shopping center or supermarket, like go to the place where you can re-engage. So if you're like, if it were me and I was having a panic attack, I would probably say I would continue to shop, but I would also like bring attention to the things that I can get grasp right away, like holding an orange and looking at the orange, right. Or just engaging with the, the, the car like what is happening where where are you like connect with that i think that can sometimes so help like us grand, write... grounding technique yeah pardon like a grounding technique yes just to help you ride that wave so that you're staying and you're still shopping but as you pick up the can to put in your into your into your um into your cart just feel it and look at it and notice it and and use that to sort of help you ride that wave. Because otherwise, if you're like spending the whole time going, I'm panicking, oh my God, I'm panicking, as you're doing it, you're still giving so much attention to the panic. I love that. Drew, I also love um, what you said about you can feel like it, you're, it's, everything's out of control, but you, you're still okay. I think that um, that really hits when you get, uh, anxiety while driving because a lot of people think well I've got I've got panic I've got anxiety there's no chance I can continue to drive mm. well um, you can <laughs> you can sometimes it, driving is a little bit different and I always tell people in the beginning if you need to pull over to learn how to let it pass that's okay it's that's that's perfectly acceptable I do understand that driving takes a bit more dexterity than than shopping so if you have to pull over to learn how to do this it, there's nothing wrong with that that's totally fine yeah, but then for the person to then continue on the journey, they've still right. completed the journey, isn't it? Right, exactly. Not run home. Fantastic. Um, Josh. Why is anxiety 10 times worse when I'm hungover? This happens to me every Friday. <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, I went back when I was... Um struggling with panic disorder yeah uh i'd avoid enjoying a beer you gotta you it depends on your relationship with alcohol first obviously if you've got an unhealthy relationship with alcohol then obviously try and step back away from it but if non-anxious you like the beer and you want to have a beer then go for it and people who would usually like a beer but then avoided doing that because they're afraid of it making them anxious then that's actually technically avoidance uh, and so I say to people like, well, you're a therapist telling me to go and have a beer. I'm like, yeah, it's exposure therapy. I mean, let's have one now. No, I, I don't do that in my, in my practice. And um, whiskey instead. Uh, it's worse because when you it takes a lot for your body to process alcohol. It, it's actually technically a poison, delicious poison. Um, what ha and it does take a lot of energy to process that, those things. It releases things. Your liver releases all sorts of things to tackle it. It's exhausting. You become dehydrated. And in simple terms, your nerves become sensitized. And that happens to everyone. That's why people call it the hangover fear. You know, have you got the fear? Now, if you've got an anxiety disorder and you've got the fear, then the fear can appear five, ten times worse. But it's still okay. You know, it's all right. That's still good exposure. And and people, like, I speak to other therapists, they're like, you're crazy. I'm, like, I'm not crazy. If this person comes to me and wants to live the life that they used to or want to, 
And then I'm going to help them do that. It's not about being well and, you know, c- controlling your gut biome and cutting out everything that's crap. No, it's about living how you want to live. And if that's what my client wants to do, that's, and that's what I'll do. Obviously, there's limits. I'm not going to help them find veins for heroin. But what I will do is tell them, like, within reason, what you're going to do. And that's what I want to do. And so, yeah, alcohol, it's normal to feel the fear 10 times worse, but it's still good exposure. That's okay. You're just sensitized. Do you um, do you think there's a link um, with dehydration and anxiety? Dehydration can mimic the symptoms of anxiety, yes, which makes it worse. A bit like coffee. You have coffee okay. and you feel wired and, <gasps> am I anxious? And with dehydration, it's the same. I feel nauseous. I feel lightheaded. I feel... I've got a dry mouth. Um, I feel bloated when I'm when I'm um, dehydrated. So yeah, dehydration can definitely be a, a trigger too, which is a good point, Dean, because when we're hungover, we are dehydrated mostly. And then obviously you would you you could potentially misinterpret that as anxiety and almost um, create a fear towards um, dehydration. Then yeah. Absolutely, and this is when you get people with the magic bottles of water. How many? I bet, I bet Dean, I bet, I bet Drew has seen plenty of these, and uh, and and Kim really like. I can't leave the house without my water. Someone got really angry with me at this on social media, so like, but you can't leave the house without magic bottle of water, and they were like, "What? So you tell us not to hydrate now?" I'm like, "No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, right. if you have a drink of water in the morning, you could probably walk around all day for hours until sundown, and you wouldn't die of dehydration." But you're doing it because it's your safety behavior. It's your crutch. Must leave with my magic bottle of water, my magic sweets and sugar, my magic Xanax, my magic rescue remedy, my magic other person. And no, just have a big drink of water and go for a walk. See what happens. Yeah, ginger ale for people who are afraid of nausea. They'll have ginger ale on them all the time. Oh, I've not heard that. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm not, I, don't, I don't even know if I've tried it. <laughs> Oh, ginger is a, a normal um, a, a nausea um, reliever. I've had many, particularly people with um, emetophobia, who would have ginger chews or ginger ale on them all the time. You know, it's funny though, like Kim. modern ginger ale. Oh, sorry, there Kim. is no ginger. There is no ginger in my like. There isn't ginger <laughs> within ten miles of a Canada Drive plant, but we do it anyway, right? Yeah. Just flavor. Love it. It's true. It's true. I've had that same conversation with clients. Yeah. Like, look at the ingredients. Tell me what you see. <laughs> right, exactly. No, no, no ginger. But anyway. Uh, Kim, the next question is for you. Is false memory OCD a real thing? Yeah. Well, is the, the suffering... And can you explain me- it? Yeah. So the suffering of false memory OCD is a real thing, right? But the whole idea around false memories is you have... So think of it like... We all have intrusive thoughts, right? So let's say we have an intrusive thought that we uh, hit another car as we're pulling out of the supermarket, right? So you kind of dinged it up. So you have the thought and then someone with false memory will often then get uncertain and have a lot of anxiety about whether that thought was a memory or a thought. And then maybe start to obsess over whether it actually happened or not. So that's a really basic example. Often it happens with much more um, taboo topics like that. Like you'll have a thought that you've harmed your child and then you get stuck on whether that was a memory or whether it was a thought 
an intrusive thought. And that can be very, very distressing for people. Um, or, you know, a lot of people have had fears that or dream that they've cheated on their partner. And then they have a lot of false memories about whether that was actually what happened. Did they get up in the middle of the night and go and cheat on their partner and they just can't remember it? So yes, that is absolutely a very common type of subtype of OCD. Um, does it mean that your thoughts are, because we could interpret this question many, many ways. Does that mean your memory is real or not? The work is not to solve that question, right? The, the work is not to try and find certainty on whether your memories happened, whether this is an actual memory or if it's just an intrusive thought. Um, your job is actually to allow that uncertainty to rise and fall. That's a fantastic answer. And uh, really, uh, you really, I love how you break it down um, for someone who who may not have that, that knowledge as well and really give it to them in, in great educational form. Um, also, the um, just to follow up from that person, because they sort of asked two questions, was why does anxiety lead to OCD at times? Right. So it's not the anxiety. We actually know in the brain of someone who's anxious it's not the anxiety that leads to OCD. That would be a misunderstanding. So with, with those, everybody has intrusive thoughts and everybody has anxiety. But what we do understand is if we were to look at the brain of someone with OCD, we know there's a couple of things happening. Number one, they tend to have a difficult time in the brain of OCD pumping the brakes on irrational thoughts. So they just like boom, 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 boom. They just come flying like some kind of lightsabery weapon right like they just fire away fire away the other piece is that we know that there is a struggle in the brain of ocd to pump the brakes on um on those thoughts but then there's also this struggle in being able to rationally like address it so if we were to think of it like here's your brain everyone could do it here's a model of the brain right so if i was looking this way here's your amygdala it's what sets off the alarm right like, what if, what if this happens? What if, and it sends out anxiety. And over that part is the, the prefrontal cortex that helps us think rationally, right? When for someone with, when someone who doesn't have OCD, the alarm might get set off, but then it talks to this top part of the brain and they talk it out and they rationalize it and it makes sense. For someone with OCD, the link between these two can be weak which means that's why with someone with OCD often finds themselves going, I don't know why I'm acting so irrational. I know it doesn't make sense, but I can't seem to get to the bottom of this. And that's because of that link. So if that is helps there any, is there any, Sorry, Kim, is there any science behind why that link um, can be weak sometimes? No, we don't know yet. We just know that it's, there's a genetic component and that there's an environmental component. Um, but that we, the good news is that weakness can be strengthened just like you would strengthen a muscle. Um, so that doesn't mean you're impaired or you're doomed or this is done deal. Um, but no, we still don't know. This, that research only just arrived in 2018. So I don't know what they know since then. Uh, the functional MRI is probably changing a lot of that research now, mm. I'm guessing. Mm. Like yeah. new, new technology, right? Like we get to right. know more stuff, which is really cool. Right. Right. We used to think it was uh, like at a glucose metabolism thing, but they're they're finding more and more. They're 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 figuring out the links, and I think that's true for all disorders, right? We're now figuring out, you know, what's going on with borderline and what's going on with bipolar and what's going on with depression more and more every day. 
is probably one of the one of the um, only subjects where obviously we're st studying the human brain, which scientists don't know a lot about at the moment, mm -hmm. isn't it? So no. we're learning day by day, I guess. Right. Uh, right. Drew, the next question um, for you is, um, can you explain recovery? I often have um, a week or so with no anxiety and then it really hits me um, out of nowhere and I feel like I've gone back to the start. Um, does that mean that I'm not recovered? No, that doesn't mean that at all. So this is a really common misconception also that recovery means I don't have anxiety. Like, and it's great if you have a good week and you're feeling great, like we want, well, want everybody to feel good, of course, but it not, we don't define recovery as not ever having anxiety or not ever experiencing anxiety or not ever experiencing panic. So that's really common. People will have a good week or a few, couple of good days and then it, then they experience some anxiety or they panic. And they feel like, oh, that means that my recovery is zero. I'm right back to the beginning, but that's not true. So really recovery is how you learn to handle it when that happens, right? So right now you're still in a situation clearly that when it happens, you you declare failure, right? Bless, like, well, you. This is, bless you. <laughs> this is, you know, this is unacceptable. It should never happen. And, you know, this means that I, my recovery, I don't, I'm not recovering. But really and truly it's how you learn to navigate through those things and how you change your reactions to those things and how you learn to tolerate them and just see them through so that they peak and then come back down and then you come back to a normal state. That's recovery. Recovery is changing your relationship to anxiety and panic first, then it begins to sort of modulate itself down. So first you have to do that. So no, and in fact, in reality, like thinking that recovery is being able to not panic or not feel anxiety, it would be like learning to swim without ever getting wet. Like I, I wanna really learn how to swim, but I don't wanna get wet. You need, to experience that anxiety, to learn how to relate to it in a new way. So it's 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 not. Recovery happens when you start to feel like, oh, I'm reacting to it a different way. You know, I'm, I'm letting it ride a little bit more. I'm not fighting it so much. That's recovery, yeah. They also wanted to ask all of us, uh, at what point did we realize that we'd recovered from an anxiety disorder? So I don't know if you want to kickstart that, Drew. Sure. Um, I mean, I had a few of those moments, I think. It's, it's so weird. I can't really say. I often wonder, like, what, you know, was there a day that I woke up and looked in the mirror and said, oh, I'm recovered? No, there wasn't. Like, I don't know when it actually happened. So it's sort of a slow process. But there are signposts that I can remember, one of which is I knew that I was pretty much completely done, if you will, with recovery when I got really, really angry one day and didn't get anxious. Like I was, I started to experience the first time I remember experiencing really strong emotion and not having it morph into panic was the day I was like, oh, okay, uh, I'm pretty much done now. This is great. Um, and also there were days when I would find that like I was just sitting on the floor petting the dog and not even thinking about how I was feeling anymore. And it would dawn on me like, holy cow, I just spent 40 minutes just playing with the dog or just interacting with my kids. And I didn't, I wasn't thinking about how I felt. Those were the kind of things that told me that I was recovering. When was the exact day? There is no exact day. I have no idea. It's it, it happens on a continuum. Hopefully that helps. So really interesting well, point about about how about experiencing emotions mm. triggers anxiety. Oh yeah, that was big for me. Like uh, I I would get as soon as I would feel anything like uh, sadness or even excitement or happiness, like I get really good news and 
I feel really good. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, no, why am I feeling panicked? That, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's really yes. interesting. We might and have really to do a common. podcast on that, Drew. We might have to Re- get you on. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, do it. I bet you a lot it. of people watching right now will say that happens to me, too. I guarantee you. Yeah, that that's, say that's that a really me. interesting one. I never really kind of pointed that down. Yeah. So yeah. Just, oh, just overwhelming emotion then to panic. Yeah. Automatically. Yeah. Everything yeah. would express as panic and fear. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Really interesting. Yeah. When did you realize you'd recovered, Josh? Um, when I realized that, like, it, the compulsion to check in with asking for my anxiety's permission. So, well, back when I was struggling, it would be like someone would, hey, Josh, you want to come out for dinner? And I'd be like, yeah, one sec, let me ask my anxiety. Can, can I go out for dinner? No, what if you panic? What if you go to the toilet? What if you throw up? What if you can't eat? What if you choke? What if you need to run out? What if you pack? Sorry, I've asked my anxiety. It says, it says no. And I used to do this all the time. Do you want to come for a drive? No, let me ask my anxiety. Can I go for a drive? No, because what if they crash? What if you can't get home? What if you panic? What if you embarrass yourself? So no, no. Um, the compulsion to... to ask my anxiety for permission and the and the confidence to overrule its decision was for me um the moment where i realized actually i can i can i can overcome this uh i did relapse a couple of times and i told you with this whole narrative around trauma and you know a bit like oh i went to i went to when i was studying to be a psychotherapist everyone was talking about trauma and obviously I've been through a lot of trauma and that planted and I've also deal with OCD as well I have OCD tendencies always will do but you mix kind of panic disorder OCD trauma and an intense psychotherapy training program and that's the perfect storm for OCD so then my OCD started to say what if there's something wrong with you that you didn't find and then that you now have got to obsess to try and find out what it is that you missed, uh, which for OCD is perfect because OCD thrives off the hidden, OCD thrives off the uncertain. And so I spent, and that's when I relapsed, went into panic and lost that confidence again because mm. I was like, oh no, maybe there is something wrong with me because I have been heavily traumatized. Don't get me wrong, they also, I still said this to Kim Quinn the other day. I do think, and I, the more I work with OCD, I do think there is a massive environmental factor to it hugely and it's getting the more i work with it the stronger it is for me it was definitely it just started when because i was thriving living in an uncertain world and then ocd was my coping mechanism mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I, it relapsed the panic and the ocd kicked in again and then it kind of morphed, morphed into gap because then suddenly i was just got in the habit of worrying about something every day and then i just woke up and just worry about stuff so, yeah, it's, it's one of them. Uh, recovery is when I said to myself, I don't mind this uncertainty today. I don't need to ask uncertainty and my anxiety for permission. I can just carry on with my day. Fantastic. Um, thank you for the insight as well, Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really interesting what you say um, about it morphing into other um, anxiety disorders because you you mentioned don't you as anxiety almost as an umbrella and you can you can have panic you can have a general anxiety disorder an OCD it's not just one specific one often you get a bit of everything no and I think it's important as well for these I 
I annoy a lot of the counselling community here in the UK because there's this huge group called Drop the Disorder and it's loads of fanatics going around saying that you're a piece of shit for saying that, calling people having disorders. Uh, and they don't like me because I say it's really important, actually, to have specific specific descriptions for certain anxieties because otherwise you actually do more can do more harm than good. I mean, if you've got OCD, for example, um, and even GAD to an extent, conventional talking therapy for that is actually more harmful because you're actually part of the narrative that goes round and round and round and round and you're you're almost platforming that narrative that rumination um where and they, people don't like me for that but i don't care <laughs> kim when do you when did you realize that you'd recover <clears throat> um well i had a lot of anxiety around food i i may have mentioned this before but i remember my uh, my therapist my first exposure was i had to eat a burrito and this was incredibly anxiety provoking for me in that what this would do to my body and how it would, I would be sort of, I believed that this would make me like a lesser person and it was just all consuming. Um, and so for me, that one, like that actually first exposure was like a major shift for me in terms of feeling very recovered because up until then I refused to do it. But then fast forward, the real recovery I remember is I was at Hawaii and you know those drinks that basically like have every creamy, sugary, crappy thing, colorful, like they've just dumped all of this <laughs> stuff in it. So it's every, it's a rainbow color and it, I don't even want to know what was in there. I remember <laughs> sipping, ordering it and sipping on it and drinking it until I was like, wait, I would never have been allowed to drink this. Never. Um, and that was a huge moment for me, you know, Amazing. so huge. It's like a 3,700 calorie beverage. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cream on top and a <laughs> cherry on top and ice cream. It was just like a smoothie drinking frenzy. <laughs> um, anxiety recovery for me, um, I dealt with panic disorder. A lot, of, um, a lot of the time was in shopping malls, like we mentioned before, Drew. Um, recovery was um, when I realized that I didn't have to start avoiding uh, the shopping malls and I could go through and go down the aisles and do my shopping. And then over time, um, it just happened out of the blue. I don't think there was any any real specific moment. I just realized that I wasn't getting as anxious as what I was. So I wasn't having full-blown panic attacks. Mate, I might have just been having the odd anxiety symptom, but it was nothing that was, um, it wasn't like a pure adrenaline rush. Uh, so when you continue to do the things that non-anxious you did, I think that's um, showing signs of recovery. Um, but yeah, anxiety isn't going to go away. A lot of people say, don't they? Will I will I return back to to me before anxiety? But I think that once someone's been through an anxiety disorder, they then have. The, the the know-how of what anxiety is so they'll never be able to be what they were previously because i don't think the they would have been experiencing these symptoms but not knowing that it was anxiety if that makes sense yeah and you can yeah. be stronger braver yeah. more Better. courageous yeah. i am more I so. intelligent emotionally intelligent empathetic successful because of the anxiety disorder don't get me wrong I've hit the I've hit the depths. Couldn't leave my room, stuff like that. But yeah, and I'm sure these guys can attest. I don't regret it happening to me. Oh, no, mm -hmm. definitely. I don't. I don't. No, definitely not.
Um, the next question is for you, Josh. Um, is it possible to have intrusive thoughts about the past or is that PTSD? Oh, that's a good question. Who the hell answered that? Uh, you asked that's a good... Oh. Well, you can get intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories, um, as, as Kim Quinlan will know. Um, and yeah, and sometimes you, that can be an obsession in itself. Is this an intrusive thought? Is this an intrusive memory? Um, if it's a sexual intrusive thought or intrusive memory, then that's further complicated by things like the groinal response and stuff like that. Um, oof. Yeah, you can have intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories. I remember when I was um, going back before about um, trauma and stuff like that. I'd be traumatized. Uh, there's things happen to me that aren't great uh, of, of, of sexual nature. And then my OCD and intrusive thoughts would then make up thoughts that happened to me like like I'd missed something. And so I'd spend hours sitting there going, oh, was I abused? Wasn't I abused? Or I was abused, but then did I forget stuff? And blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, I'm just leading to the number one compulsion, which is rumination. Um, but again, you can see how convoluted minds are. You got at some point. I learned a lot from it, though. But yeah, that's... Yeah, you, you can. For me, though, if you're sat there for a long time, sat going, is this a memory? Is this not? Is this a true thought? You'd know if it's a memory. You know, it's, it's really nice. Is that I went to see a really lovely uh, chartered psychologist here in the UK, and she just sat down and was like, Josh, you'd know if it was a memory. Like, it would be obvious. If you're, it, it, it's fine. And even though your OCD is saying, oh, but what if it's not? No, you'd know if it was a memory and that's pretty obvious. I worked with PTSD all my life, whatever, you'd know it's a memory. And I was like, okay, that's enough reassurance for me. And it was, and it stuck for years. Um, when it's an intrusive thought, playing into that, you're on the OCD hamster wheel there and it just wants you to ruminate, wants you to find 100% certainty, wants you to seek reassurance, wants you to compulse. You know, if you're happy and you know it, go compulse. All those kind of things. And yeah, uh, uh, I was chatting to Kim Quinlan about Jeff, Jeffrey Schwartz the other day about the um, the guy who, who offers brain lock. There's some good stuff in that book, some weird stuff in that book that I don't agree with. But what I the line that I remember from that book is, if you suspect it's OCD, assume it's OCD. And I really like that sentence, and that kind of helped me. So, yeah, I, I would say if you suspect it's an intrusive thought, it's probably an intrusive thought. Mm. Mm. A great answer, Josh. Um, almost, almost as good as like if you had a book coming out on intrusive thoughts. It is maybe. almost as good. You know what, Dean? I completely forgot about that. Because if one of those times, Untangle Your Intrusive Thoughts is coming out. It looks like Untangle Your Anxiety, but it's in a nice blue colour. And you can get it as a gift. It's really good. There's loads of topics in there about intrusive thoughts about killing your children sleeping with family members eating feces basically everything drew does on a friday night but in a book and that's before eight book. before <laughs> 8 p.m <laughs> can i can Great. i follow up on that yeah. just really quick is also to remember that ptsd is on a spectrum too right it's not black and white so you can have memories of the past uh, of events that happened to you but that doesn't mean you have PTSD, that we we all have 
um, repetitive memories and, and flashes of things that happened in the past, but that doesn't mean you have to have all the symptoms for PTSD. Yeah, that's a great addition. <laughs> Did I stop um, you all? <laughs> Drew. <laughs> no, I thought you was going to carry on. Drew, um, the next Yo. question is, um, I'm really scared of being alone. This creates anxiety. I end up having to either text a friend or put the TV on. Is this me failing um, with being just with myself? I mean, failing is no, I mean, I, I don't, that's, that's not a good way to think about that. Like, oh, I'm failing being with myself. Essentially, all that is, is just another incorrect answer, right? On a quiz. So if you think about like, every time anxiety hits, it's like your brain is taking a quiz and you can either kind of get the right answers or the wrong answers. And in that case, well, your brain has just kind of gotten into some bad habits and it just keeps checking off the wrong boxes on the quiz, right? That just says, oh, you, you need somebody to save you or distract you because you can't handle feeling this way. So it's not failure, it's just that this is the pattern that your brain has decided to put you in because it thinks it's keeping you safe. So don't look at it as failing, look at it as an opportunity to learn. So like if you take a, a math quiz, if you have a good teacher, or a good professor, if you don't get a good score on the quiz, they'll give it back to you and say, let's go over the things that you got wrong. And this way you can fix them and learn them and do better in the next quiz. So when you feel like, okay, I have to text a friend or leave the TV on or that sort of stuff, you could stop for a second, put a little air gap in and say, well, why? Like, why do I feel that? Oh, okay. I think I have to do that because I feel like I need to be rescued from these feelings. I can't handle them if I just sit with them. Okay, so then what can I do? Well, let me wait for three minutes before I text my friend and just sit and tolerate this for three minutes. And then I'll go text my friend or then I'll put the TV on or the radio on. And then the next time I will do that for five minutes and then I will do that for seven minutes. And so it's not failure. It's just another opportunity to to learn like well, I've just been, my brain is taking the wrong boxes when it's, when it takes this quiz. So I have to go back figure out why it's doing that and then practice the right answers. And so I can get it right the next time. But failure is such a, I don't like when people say that, like I'm failing, you're not failing. In fact, a lot of times I think what it means is you can't fail if you don't try, first of all. And if you just automatically follow the anxious thoughts and, and insist that they are true and I must follow them, then that's certainly not failure because you're not even trying a different way. So try a different way and learn from it. That's that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next that's brilliant, Drew. And um, the next question is for is a joint question for Josh and Kim. Um being two therapists, can you give three positives and three negatives of CBT therapy? Oh he's dropping spicy questions in like that. That's good. <laughs> I, uh, I, let's do we have to do three yeah that's oh. what they've asked for challenge accepted okay um three pos i'll go i'll just tell you the positives so the positives is that it works um that's a really big positive the other positive thing is that it's measurable Sometimes there are other really helpful modalities, but the, it's really hard to measure them. So with CBT, we can really measure, right? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You the, don't agree? The, the, the ghost of Carl Rogers came back. Yeah. And made me want to vomit. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I thought you were saying what she's saying is like moment worthy. I was like, uh oh. Um, Empiricism is the way forward. Sorry, carry on. Right. So it's really measurable, right? So we can actually, I can, I can say to a client and and measure how well they're doing based on those skills. Um, I think the other really helpful thing is it's it's um, something we can all have access to, right? We can all work at correcting our thoughts and we can all work at correcting our behaviors. You don't actually have to have a clinician in front of you to engage in CBT, whereas with some of the other modalities, you're working blind. How would you possibly work on some of those modalities on your own? And in our, in our right now, we need better accessibility with mental health care and CBT is very, very accessible and able to be applicable. So that would be my three wins. Um, the negatives Josh do you want to go and I'll think about that oh I know all the positives and negatives it's great I actually did this part of my master's research phenomenological experiences and survey data from people with panic disorder and anxiety disorders seeking treatment Uh, really cool Uh, and also my personal one I'll add three more positives CBT is great it's relies on psychoeducation in order to practice cbt you need knowledge of certain anxious presentations whereas if you go to see conventional talking person-centered humanistic therapy they assume that you're the master of your own um well-being and knowledge of yourself which is not correct i didn't know all these things that were happening in my brain and no matter how long i sit there with carl rogers chewing the fat i would never know what was happening in my brain uh so your therapist should be qualified uh, in the sense that they should have knowledge of it. In the UK, that isn't, I'll be honest, not every CBT therapist does have knowledge of the, of those of mm-hmm. those modalities. And if they have, they've not forgotten them. They've not remembered them. You I've not seen many CBT therapists. I've had clear panic disorder and they've sat there going, well, have you just like tried breathing? Yet if they remembered their research, David Clark, which they should be putting in their essay, said breathing isn't focusing on your breathing is not good for panic disorder. So they should know basic stuff. Half of them do, half of them don't. Um, that's an arbitrary number, but you, you get what I, you get what I mean. Um, but if you get a good CBT therapist, that's kind of it. Can be magical. Um, also, yeah, as Kimberly said, it's it's pro- it's proven. You can measure it. Over time, there's some great resources, techniques, and I love the homework in CBT. It's about you. It's about you doing it. Suds, subjective units of distress are your friend. You can measure your own progress going forward. It's great. The downside of CBT is that it's very prescriptive. A lot of CBT practitioners don't have a foundation of humanistic knowledge. I know a lot of people with anxiety disorders that do not engage in CBT because they're just whacking out worksheets and going, do this, do that. There's no connection. There's no person. I love person-centered therapy. I love Carl Rogers. There's none of that. And I've experienced this too. I've walked in. I want someone to understand me, to listen, Mm -hmm. to understand. And they're immediately like, what's the theory? Because they've not had the basic kind of counseling, therapeutic approach. Uh, That's only my opinion and the opinions of many. Um, CBT is also, the limit of CBT is it's very time-limited. For some people, I've worked with anxiety disorders that have been enmeshed in things like trauma and talking and, and many things that have happened, and that can't be solved in 12 sessions. Mm-hmm. I've actually worked with people with basic panic disorder, which CBT tells you you should be cured in 12 to 16 sessions. 
Well, not actually if you've been through a lot of crap. Actually, that can take as long as a year or two. It depends. And um, in my experience, I've done some good work there too. Um, mm. I love seeing the CBT can be incorporated with other modalities. So for me, I love CBT as a standalone modality. If I've only just learned CBT and I go and work with everyone, I don't think it's enough. I think it needs to be attached to other things like a great transformer that can transform from a Porsche into a huge humanity killing robot that goes around killing. Sorry, I'm going off the mark. <laughs> Josh, Josh, um, just to continue with that, if it, for example, if it was someone in America and they can't afford therapy, what would your advice be on them? And they had like an interest in wanting to start self-help um, CBT on the Internet. But obviously they're not getting that humanistic approach then. Would your advice still be to go ahead and do self-help uh, CBT? He's, dro he's dropping the questions. He's dropping spicy questions. I have the he's, answer to he's, this. He's nailing it. <laughs> I know the answer. Go, on, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, go, go no, ahead. no, Kimmy. You, you know the answer. I'm, I'm stalling. <laughs> in, in October, I have a book coming out called The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD, and it's about marrying more of that humanistic, compassion-focused therapy with CBT. And there are more, not just mine, but there are more books who are willing to mesh ACT and CBT, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, there's so many of them coming out now. I think that as a community, clinicians are now starting to write more about um, CBT that marries with other things that can be really, really helpful. I'm so excited for your book, Kimberly. I'm almost as excited for it as on time. Sorry. I'm <laughs> no, I, I can believe that, Josh. I can believe I genuinely that. am really excited for it because everything's like, it needs compassion. Even when I was reading Brain Lock, it's like, it's just theory, theory, do, theory, do, theory. Yeah. We're human beings, for God's sake. We need a little bit of love and compassion. Like, yeah. just, I need. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Passion. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> you like, it looked like you were blanking out your, your swear words. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too. Is he bleeping himself? Are we censored something? <laughs> No, my phone hit low battery mode. <laughs> yeah. And I would say the only other negative, and I wouldn't even call it a negative, but I think it's perceived as negative, is it's hard. It's CBT is, is work. It's not going and sitting in a chair for 50 minutes and going home. It's it's work and you get homework and, and you have to face some pretty uncomfortable stuff. So that I would say that's a negative but also a positive. Yeah. And just just on the, uh, going back to the question, Kim, um, would you, so if they just wanted to go down the, the worksheet self-help route, would you say that's still um, a positive thing to do? Like, even if they didn't have like your book or mar married it with mindfulness, et cetera, is that still a positive thing for them to be doing? I think 100%. I mean, a lot of anxiety management is awareness, right? So if you're doing these worksheets, if they're good worksheets, you're building awareness of obsessions and thoughts, thought errors you may be having or behaviors that you're engaging with. Like even in social media, I will post about some kind of psychoeducation about a behavior and people will go, oh my God, I had no idea. So now they're aware and now they can like check in with themselves without a therapist and go, hey, I think I'm doing reassurance seeking. I didn't know that was a thing or something like that. 
Uh, Drew, I just saw that someone asked, um, did you um, um, ever use CBT and what, what's your thoughts on, on CBT as a therapy? I'm sorry, Dean, you broke up on me. I didn't. Um, did, did you use CBT in your recovery and what's your thoughts on CBT as a therapy? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely did. I, I had the therapist that I had for a short while was it's so it's so funny. The guy who's always saying get a CBT therapist. My therapist was not she did not specialize in anxiety disorders. However, she was intelligent enough to know that she didn't. And she did a little bit of homework and she pointed me in a good direction. And we worked, you know, we worked really well together. That's I didn't see her. Yeah, she was great. Knowing your, limit, knowing your limitations. So, yeah. I, and you know what? She was able to bring in some really good stuff that I needed to go along with this sort of like ruthless recovery machine thing that I was doing. So her name is Rhea and I'm forever in her debt. And she was a great, great therapist. But yes, my recovery is absolutely 100% based on the principles of CBT. There's no doubt about that. I would not be here if it wasn't for that. Hmm. So, but you know, there's so much hard work that you do have to worry about the other stuff. You really do. Like, you know, if you can't just do the work of CBT 24 seven, you can't, there are other things in life and you have to understand when you're doing hard things and they scare you and they exhaust you like that. You have to pay attention to that stuff too. It's all important. So. It's really, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think, oh, sorry. Dean. Go on. No, go on, Josh. Oh, I was just saying it's really interesting. Like in, in my practice has been open seven six, seven years now. Um, well, it was a coaching practice initially, and then I did my psychotherapy and stuff like that. But the amount of people that are, a significant proportion of people that have come to me, panic attacks, fear of panic attacks, misinterpretation of the anxious response, intrusive thoughts, whatever. And they, they've come into the session and they've just had an hour to talk about themselves with no judgment, feeling safe, maybe a couple of hours, no real work on what they do and their anxiety comes down significantly and actually they realize actually i've stopped panicking i've stopped doing all these things and if that isn't one vote for kind of the 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 importance of that feeling safe that humanistic element to therapy then what is and i've sat there scratch med like well i'm about i was about to drop some truth bombs on you about psychoeducation <laughs> And they're like, no, I feel fine. I just needed a space mm -hmm. to talk. Mm -hmm. I thought my problems were there. And and I just found that fascinating. And that's why I, I went down the humanistic route. Don't get me wrong. That's not for everyone. You can go to talking therapy and go around and around in circles. I've always been there. But th there's an element to it. And it always, it, always it always reminded me of that. Like, if we can get the perfect cocktail here of, of certain kind of, and of a certain approach, think. And that requires modalities coming together and understanding people a bit more, phenomenology in particular. You want something special. But not at the moment. You're just going to have to put up with us lot talking crap on a Friday. You know, I think... Oh, so so just, oh, that's talking therapy, no. Um, I think you did say that was humanistic therapy, yeah? Yeah, there's many talking therapies. Uh, humanistic therapy is just when you just get a room, no homework, no nothing, get stuff off your chest, and someone really cares and listens, and and you can tell that person cares and listens. And I've had that, and I've, and and even personally, like obviously, it wasn't the cure for my panic disorder, but I remember having lots of panic attacks, fearing panic attacks. But when just going to talk therapy and talking about it more, my panic attacks definitely lessened. It just goes to show that actually. It is part of the recovery, in my opinion, that's always fine. 
<laughs> you know, I think it depends on the day sometimes too. Like some days you really need like the CBT, ACT, MCT stuff, that the hardcore homework, the mechanics. Some days you just need to talk about things. Yeah. And that could change from day to day and hour to hour. So it's not it's not one size fits all every single yeah. day. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think if you have a clinician, and I often have to do this, is at the beginning of the session, I don't say, okay, here's the agenda. I'll be I'll say like <laughs> what do you need to look at today? Now I might say, they might answer that by going, I really just need to vent this thing out. And I might say, well, let's make sure we leave some room to look at your homework, but being able to structure a session to make sure the person gets that can be really helpful. And um, I, I often say that what helped me was a, um, an older friend that I had at the time who had been through an anxiety disorder and it was like marrying both of them together. So get, gaining the psychoeducation that he's been through um, the same things that I was experiencing and being able to um, tell me what each symptom was, as well as, like you say, being able to get it off your chest to someone who understands. Great uh, example. I found that very, very yeah. Great example. Um, guys... We're coming up to the hour. Kim, I know you need to dash off. Um, where can everyone find you and what are you working on this week? Drew, are you still writing that fantastic book of yours? 7% slower. I am. It's about 80% done. It's, fantastic. This is fun. And it's I'm, exci nice I'm excited for that book as well. I am too. Yeah, it's oh. a nice, short, fun one. So, yeah, that, that's that's... That's cool. I'm, I'm enjoying this one. I was going to say, it's not, as, it's not as big as the Anxious Truth one, though. Oh, I don't know if I'm ever going to write 75,000 words again. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> so, Amazing. Why write yeah. one book when you can turn it into four books and put another, like four individual books? See, before that's what Dean and I are doing. Yes, that's exactly right. We'll consult with Josh so he can set me straight. Very good. Yeah. Right. Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys, for coming. Um, everyone, you can find Josh at Anxiety. Josh, Kim, Kimberly Quinlan and drew the anxious dot truth um it's and the, we'll do it again next week yeah <laughs> sorry 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 the the, the dot anxious dot truth yes <laughs> yes got it just Excellent. so everybody Thank knows i won't be here next week i won't be here oh. next week i'll be on vacation actually i might be Kim, as well see you. i i think i'm on vacation <laughs> next week as well I still think Dean and Drew should do a special one though and get people up and start. Yeah, we can do it. If Drew's available, uh, definitely. Yeah. All right. We'll maybe do that. That'll be great. So. Right. I'll All tune right, in for fantastic. it. Fantastic. But I'll be on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Have a wonderful right, week, folks. everybody. Uh, yeah. Bye bye. You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at DLC Anxiety. Check our website at DLCAnxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book. Untangle Your Anxiety on Amazon today. See you next time.